songbook yet. All the lyrics are available for download to where you can print them out at home. And you can also go to the library if you don't have a printer and download them and print them at the library. And if you're not able to do that either, then let us know that you would like a copy of our songbook and we would we're glad to send that to you for free if you're inside the United States. God, I had all these other songs on here too. There we go. Thank you. 
on the glory road. At least I home many trials. I have paid. Why is that blessing? Now I before me and hear me and know I won't a little harder. Pray a little harder. I can't stop until the battle's won. Another mountain, cross another river, my race is almost won. Off and on the journey, my feet are so weary, and I'm feeling impossible to dream. But I know that I should come to the table, and I'm feeling downward, this is a thousand years to my life. Hey, little harder, I can't stop until the battle's won. Mountain, mountain, the 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 if you walk a little harder, pray a little harder, you can't stop until the battle's won. Don't find another mountain, cross another river, the place is almost mine. I walk a little harder, pray a little harder, I can't stop until the battle's won. If I find another mountain, Cross another river and the race is almost won. Amen. Praise God. Page 34, his eyes on the sparrow. And for those that have just tuned in, if you don't have one of our songbooks, you can download these lyrics from the internet. We have links available on MeWe, our social media group. And you can download those lyrics. And Miss Putt, these lyrics and the songs also, the download photo links on the music page on the website also. We're going to add that later today on the music article, music page on the website where I add the links there as well, especially for the people that's not on MeWe. And it's also difficult at times to go through all, scroll down the page through a million different posts and find these things on MeWe. So we'll add it to the website today. But you can download these lyrics and the music both and have them there right there at your place. And if you don't have a printer, you can go to the library or a friend's house where they do have a printer. And if you can't do that, you can let us know and we'll be glad to print these for you and send them to you. This is page 34. His eye is on the sparrow. Thank you. 
I love that song, and I know you do too. Amen. Praise God for that song. It's so true. He watches us. Even the little tiny sparrow, even the little tiny flock, even the little tiny church that is his, even his small congregations, even the one sheep that is all by themselves. He watches us. He sees everything going on. Everything. Nothing escapes his attention. The Bible says that even the hair of our head is numbered. If one hair falls out, he knows it. He is intently in love with us. He is intently obsessed with us. He watches our ever step. He knows, the Bible says, that he knows even our thoughts before we speak it. He knows us. Amen. He loves us, each and every one. He pays attention to us. And we should pay attention right back to him and be obsessed with him. We we should feel his emotions, see things with his eyes, think as he thinks. The Bible says that we have the mind of Christ. We should. Amen. So it doesn't matter if you're small or big, little or big, thick or thin. He cares about each one of us. Amen. He is very understanding. He is our kinsman redeemer. Amen. Always remember that. His eye is always on you. In the good times and in the bad times, he always sees you and hears you at all times. Amen. And especially to those that are truly his. Amen. Especially to those that are truly his flock, his congregation, his chosen ones, especially above all others. Amen. He is so good to us. Let us be right back good to him. Let us praise his name eternally. Let us praise him in the morning. Let us praise him in the noontime. Let us praise him in the evening time. Let us praise him in the good and in the bad. At all times, let us praise the Lord. And when the times get rough, let us praise him more, not less. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Lord, Heavenly Father, we worship you and praise your holy name. We thank you, Lord, for calling us together today for a sacred assembly. Thank you for all of our brothers and sisters that join us. Thank you, Lord, that they are growing in the measure of your spirit and in your truth. We pray that they be encouraged and strengthened in your word and in song. Pray, Lord, that we become more of a family unit. We pray that there be more unity. 
We pray that you would gather us together with our brothers and sisters that we don't yet know that have come to you and will be coming to you. We know that you will. We don't even have to ask this. Revelation 12 is extremely clear that you are going to gather your people before the great tribulation. We will not be alone. And I rebuke those accusations that we will be alone because those are not biblical. Bible does not lie when translated correctly and understood correctly. Revelation 12 is very clear that you will gather your people before the tribulation to go in together as a family, as a unit, as a church. The scriptures cannot be broken, Jesus said. And they will not be broken. Your word is true. Your word is faithful. And you are faithful to do as you have said. You always sent a Moses figure, an Elijah figure, a Jeremiah figure. You have always sent a Noah figure. You have always sent a Paul figure. You have always sent your prophets and your servants to gather your people together. And your people did gather under the administration of Moses to cross the Red Sea. And your people did gather. The family of Noah did gather with Noah to go through the storm and to come out the other side safe and sound. You have not changed. You're the same today and tomorrow and forever. You have always worked in this way, even with Joseph and many others, even with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is the way that you worked to send an administration, a leader, a shepherd among mankind to lead your people, and they followed. And they went where they went. The sheep followed those shepherds that you sent. If people would humble themselves, not be so proudful to go their own way, but if they would humble themselves and submit themselves to one another, they would submit themselves to your shepherds and follow your shepherds wherever they may lead under your guidance, under your covering. We ask, Lord, that you correct our thinking, correct our minds, correct our lives, and realign us to the scriptures, to your guidance, to your direction, to your administration, to your will, to your plan, and not our own plan, not our own way, not our own direction. Not our carnal, foolish, rebellious thinking. But that we would come in line, Lord, with 
unity in your church. Help us, Lord, to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and throw our servitude at your feet. Help us to be willing servants to do as you would have us to do. Deliver us of any stubbornness, of any hard-headedness that is wicked and lawless. Bring us, Lord, into the fullness of your spirit and the center of your will. We ask you, Lord, to help us to understand this message that we are about to receive. Help us, Lord, to take this information and move forward into a deeper relationship with you and more unity in the body of Christ. May this information that we're about to receive also help us to be more separate from the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, your will be done in all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Praise Jesus. Let's go to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 12, verse 13 is where we'll start. Luke 12, verse 13. Well, I hope everybody has their coffee and their fruit juice and their water, whatever else you need there. Your eyeglasses and your ink pen, I do encourage you to print out these sermon notes and add notes to them as we talk, as I teach here today. Scribble some more notes on top of those notes in there. And if you have not printed them out yet, then just get your piece of notebook paper and you can staple them to the other notes. But you know what? Even though I've got notes written for you, typed up, it's very helpful to you also to make additional notes. Because you know these notes were done before the worship services began today, taken throughout the week and last night and this morning as I was seeking the Lord all week and yesterday and last night and today. These notes have been made. But as I teach today, there will be many things that are not in the notes that you need to remember. And when you write them down, it helps you to remember because there's so much to learn. Amen. There's so much. There's so much. Even when I'm up here preaching, I'm learning right along with you. People that's been listening for any more than just a day or two. If you have listened to many sermons at all, then you know what I'm talking about. That God just speaks and teaches me and you both at the same time. There's so much. And that's a good thing. So that we won't be bored. Amen. There's always something more to learn that will give us a a craving for more. It's like sugar. 
or any good food, lasagna and fried potatoes, mm-mm-mm, pinto beans, yeah, taco. When you have one, a potato chip, you can't stop at one. Amen? You can't stop at one. You need more. You need more. It tastes good. You've got to have more. Amen. That's the way the Word of God is. As He teaches us, it's like, wow, that's good. I want more, Lord. Keep feeding me so I can keep growing spiritually. Amen. So it's good to jot down some notes of your own to help you because you can come back six months from now or a year from now or two years from now and look over those notes again and be like, oh, yeah, I forgot that. Guarantee you, guarantee you. You have those notes that will refresh your memory of some things you forgot. It's very useful. I really do encourage everyone to make notes. And if you don't have the ink pen and paper with you today, then maybe you can have those next week. Amen. Come on in and join us, please. Luke chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 13. Now, the subject today is God's little flock. God's little flock. The little flock. You know, I've used those words many times over the last few weeks. Have any of you dared to look it up in Scripture? Have you? I hope that you have. Robert has. I knew he would. Amen. I said it was in the Bible. Are you just going to believe me? Or are you going to look it up in the Bible and see for yourself? Amen. I hope that everybody's already done that. But if not, even if you have or have not, either way, we'll look at it today where Jesus called his church the little flock. Because we are a small church compared to the universal Catholic church. The word Catholic means universal. Did you know that? That's what, what the word Catholic means, universal. Meaning throughout the entire earth, everybody who is in the false churches, everybody that's in Babylon, everybody that's in confusion and false religion, they are members of the Catholic Church. And that is absolutely true. And I will explain that to you briefly. Islam is a version of the Catholic Church. They are the one and the same. And that false prophet article, I saw the like ministries.com slash false prophet dot html. It gives you how many, I think it's what, 18 or 19 different ways that Islam and the Catholic Church are the same. They are the same. The Muslims, they are Catholics. And Catholics, they are Muslims. And the same thing with Hinduism. That is a version of Islam, which is a version of the Catholic Church. It's all in together. It's a universal church. False church of the devil. Amen. And compared to that, we, in the, in the church of Jesus Christ, we are a small flock. Amen. Starting in verse 13, it says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Human, who appointed me? 
a judge or arbitrator over you. Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Amen. So in verse 14, what Jesus is saying is that there are offices of judges. There are appointees of government and church and stuff like that. And Jesus was not an appointee of government, of human government, or of the official church of the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Jesus was a total outsider. Amen. He was not associated with man's government and man's religion. He was an outsider. There was plenty of judges appointed by the Pharisees religiously as well as through the Roman Empire, plenty of judges. Okay, so he's basically saying that you should go to those people appointed for such things. But then he says, why are you, why are you even wanting this? Why are you even wanting this physical possessions, these monies, these houses, this land? Why do you even want these things to start with? Amen. For even when he does have abundance, does his life consist of possessions? No. Amen. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, this man did, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? He had so much crops, so much materials, so much food, that he had not enough storage room for them. Verse 18, then he said, this is what I would do. I would tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I would store all of my grain and my goods. And I would say to my soul, so you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But Theo said to him, you fool. Yeah, God did call this man a fool. This night your soul is required of you. And who will own what you have prepared? In other words, you're going to die tonight, the man said. So who's going to take all that you have gained, all these material possessions? Who's going to take it? Verse 21, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward theos. Amen. So this is the fate, death, and the loss of everything you own. Everybody, except for those, that, well, even those, everybody will lose everything that they own. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. Amen. What a glorious day it will be when people lose their houses, their lands, and their money. It would be a great day of deliverance. Right now, many people serve house and home, family, friends, and so forth as their treasures, but they don't have the richness toward God. 
They don't have the heavenly treasures. Amen. Verse 22, and he said to his disciples, look at verse 22 there, for what reason I say to you, do not be over anxious about life. Don't be. Don't be over anxious about life as to what you would eat, nor for your body. Don't worry about your body. So much as being over anxious. Now, he's not saying be irresponsible. Don't get it wrong. A lot of people twist this. A lot of the homeless, as I have said a long time ago, but for the new people, i got to say this again. A lot of homeless people take these verses in Matthew 5, Matthew 6, wherever it's, wherever, wherever it's at, that speaks about the same thing. Not be over anxious about your clothes, you wear, what you're going to do with life, what you're going to eat. A lot of homeless people say, well, this means that I should not have a bank account. I should not have a checking account. I should not save money. I should not worry about tomorrow. I should not have any concern about tomorrow. I should not have any concern where I'm going to lay my head because this is what told, God told us to do. And that is total bullcrap. That is foolishness. Jesus was not teaching that you should be irresponsible. Amen? It is wise. Jesus would want you to count your money and have rent when the rent is due and have the money for the electorate when the electorate is due. God doesn't want you to be irresponsible. Okay? He doesn't want you to forsake responsibility. That is not God's will for you to forsake responsibility. So don't twist it like a lot of homeless people do. They just use it as an excuse for their sin, actually, their immaturity and their and them not wanting to be responsible. They just don't want to be responsible. And they're using it to excuse their lack of responsibility. Amen. But what he is teaching here is that we should not be overly worried or anxious about these things because if we put our trust in him and at the same time that we are counting our money, being responsible with how much we buy and how much we eat and how much we use, if we're being responsible and if we trust in the Lord, he will make up the difference. He will help us to make the right decisions. Amen. He'll help us to make those right decisions. He'll give us the right direction, even as a shepherd does for his sheep, for his flock. He would give us the right direction. What jobs to take, what jobs not to take, what friends to have, what friends not to have, what church to go to, what church not go to and everything else, everything else. He will give us direction. Amen. And he'll lay the path for us if we're willing to walk in that path and not be stubborn and rebellious. He will lay that path for us and hopefully we'll walk in that path that he has laid for us. So why be worried? Why be worried to death? Why be anxious? Why be depressed? about the financial situation. That's life. Financial struggle is just part of life for most of us. So why worry about it? As Jesus said, it does not add one inch 
to our height does not add any strength or good thing to us to be worried about things. Amen. And verse 23, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Amen. Interesting that Jesus said that your flesh is more than just needing clothes. There's so much more to it. There's so much more to life than eating food. And there's so much more to your flesh than just a place to hang clothes. You're not a clothes hanger. (laughs) Your flesh is so for so much more than just hanging clothes upon it. You are not a clothes hanger. Amen. But rather your flesh is the temple of God. Amen. Your flesh is the temple of God. It should not be looked upon as being nasty. Your body is the temple of the Lord, a glorious temple. Don't hate your body. No one should hate their body. If you don't like it because it's out of shape, well, then get in shape instead of complaining about it. Do something about it. If you don't like it, do something about it. There is such a thing as exercise. There is such a thing as proper diet, proper food, proper health. Exercise, sunshine, walking, hiking. God does not want us to be irresponsible with these things. But just don't be overly anxious. Don't be obsessed with your body. Don't be obsessed with the electric bill and how you're going to make your rent and how you're going to retire. But you know these people that own these big corporations, they are obsessed with making more money, more money, more money. Let's open up more restaurants. Let's open up more stores. Let's make another billion dollars. They never get satisfied that they already have so much millions, so much billions. They're never satisfied. Never, ever, ever, ever satisfied. Always wanting more. Never being content. And I believe it's in either James or Timothy I think, Timothy, that, that, that Paul says, for us to be content with what we have. We don't need to want more. And that's what Jesus is saying here, too. It's okay to work a job to get enough, enough more to meet the bills. But in order, but if you want to work a job and earn money, to stock up a whole bunch of money to sit in the bank and sit there and rot and not be used, that's a waste of money, of your time, of your energy, of your focus, of your goals. No one should ever want to have a million dollars in the bank. No one should ever want that. as an ungodly, wasteful, Want of vanity, very vain. Be content with enough to survive without wanting additional gain beyond survival. Enough money to eat and pay your rent and your electric bill is sufficient because we have no need to 
have a whole bunch of fancy furniture and all kinds of fancy decorations on the wall and a second house and very expensive vacations and expensive cars. The car I own right now, I paid maybe $1,200 or $1,500 for. The car before that, I paid $1,000 for. car before that, maybe 2000 max. We have no need for a $30,000, $40,000, $50,000, $60,000 car. No need for it. If it gets you to the store, if it gets you across town, if it gets you over here to Tennessee to visit for the holy days, then it is sufficient. It doesn't have to be the most beautiful car on the road. It doesn't have to be the most powerful car on the road. It doesn't have to be the loudest, dirtiest, filthiest, loudest pipes on the road like a lot of people want. It doesn't have to have those giant $2,000 per wheel tires. That's ridiculous. That's crazy. Anybody that would spend $1,000 or even $500 on one tire, they're out of their minds. And they are guilty of taking food out of the mouth of the needy. To blow money like that is inhumane. When you can get a tire totally sufficient for your car or truck for $50 or $100. Totally sufficient. And you want to spend $500 or $1,000 or $2,000 per tire? That's inhumane. And you're guilty of not taking care of the needy, but rather taking care of your vain wishes. And in that context, that word is okay. Your vain, sinful wishes. Same thing with houses. You just need somewhere to lay your head. You don't need a mansion. Amen. So this lesson, even though we're talking about the little flock, is in the context of Jesus teaching us that we don't need a lot of worldly possessions and not to be obsessed with physical things. It is the heavenly things. Rich toward Jesus, verse 21. It is the heavenly things, the spiritual things that we should be more concerned about, thinking about, putting our minds on. Instead of putting our minds on our bodies and the riches of the world and fancy things, we should be putting our minds on our eternal retirement, of eternal retirement, our salvation, where we're going to be. What's going to happen to us in the resurrections and on Judgment Day? That's what we need to put our mind upon. If we be obsessed about anything, let us be obsessed about God and his love and his goodness and his scriptures and making it to the finish line successfully as a winner and not a loser. Amen. It says in verse 24, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom, no barn, but yet Theos feeds them. 
How much more valuable are you than the birds? We did that song, His Eyes on the Sparrow. Amen. Verse 25, and which of you, by worrying, can add a hour to his lifespan? You cannot. In fact, it reduces your lifespan when you worry yourself to death or worry yourself at all. It reduces your lifespan. It's unhealthy mentally and physically and spiritually. It's unhealthy. Why would you want to kill yourself? Why would you want to worry? It's not enjoyable to worry. It's not enjoyable, so why would you want to do it? If you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Or if you cannot even do a little thing, why do you worry? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. In other words, it's better to be naked like a flower than to have on fancy clothes. Because even Solomon, who was filthy rich, with all of his robes and his crowns and his golden rings and his scepter and his throne and all of his glory, all those clothing was just in vanity. Solomon always talks about vanity. Life is vanity. This is vain. This is vain. This is vain. Well, guess what? His fancy clothing was also just all in vain because that glorious temple of yours, that bare chest of yours, those bare legs of yours is more beautiful than all the clothing in Solomon's wardrobe. Amen. We don't have to clothe ourselves except for your vanity and your fear about who you are. People clothe themselves because we've been programmed and brainwashed that you have to hide your temple, that you have to hide the temple of God, that the temple of God is nasty, that the temple of God is unholy, evil. Evil. They've been taught in vain wars this foolishness, but a child knows better. A little child will tear off his clothes and run naked through the house, even with strangers in the house. Even, even with visitors and families and friends, and even the mailman comes in the house, the child is not bashful at all to be naked. That's the way humans of all ages. Should be, absolutely should be. There's freedom when you let go of those pre-programmed thoughts, way of thinking. Let go of those things and there's freedom in that. You get closer to God by realizing that God did not create you as an evil, nasty thing. You get closer to God by realizing that God did not create your flesh as being an evil, nasty thing. Amen. So it says, and then verse 28, but if Theo so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is going to be thrown in the furnace, how much more would he clothe you? 
He's talking spiritually because is the grass clothed? No, it's not. The grass and the birds and the dogs and the cats and the monkeys and all the animals and all the grass and all the trees and all the herds, they are all naked by nature. Even the baby, even you and me, all of us was born into this world divinely naked. Divinely naked. So it's talking about clothing with protection, clothing with spirituality, clothing with whatever is really that we really truly need. God clothes us mentally, emotionally, spiritually. You men of little faith. God will take care of us. Verse 29, and do not seek what you're going to eat and drink, but do not keep on worrying. All the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows what you need, that you need these things. But seek his kingdom, and His these things will be added to you. He will give you the food you need. He'll give you the house. He'll give you the clothing for the winter time. He'll give you the clothing to obey the law whenever you're under that bondage of men's evil laws to get by, to get into the store and back home. He would give you the clothing that you do need for those things. He'll give you what you do need, and that's sufficient. You don't have to make as much money as possible to stock your bank account and let it sit there and give it to your children and all that foolishness. Let them make their own money. Amen. Let them learn the value of work rather than just uh, giving them money free. Let them earn their own way through college. Then they will appreciate it better and learn the value of money and not be spoiled. Let your children, which are not even children anymore, but grown adults, let them work their own way through school. That would do them much better because you're just spoiling them and you pay their way. I think everybody, even as I did when I was 16 years old, got my first job when I was 16. I think everybody should have their first job when they're actually 12 years old is when they should start working. And if not 12, then 13. And if not 13, then 14. And 15 and 16. And by the time you're 17, if that child, if that boy, rather, let's put it that way, because I don't think women should work at all, except for just at home and on the farm. And you know I've said a few exceptions to that before. But, so let me say it again, that all boys, which are actually men, by the time they're 12 years old, they're actually very well into manhood. Very childish, yeah. But they are men by the time they are 12. So are women. They are women by the time they are 12, even at 10 years old, especially if they're already having their periods, they are already women, especially if they live in Africa or other primitive society, walking the old path, the old-fashioned way, the way it ought to be. Here in America and in the Western world, we baby our children until they're 30 years old. Some people are still 40 and 50 and still under their parents' roof and, and, and taking money from their parents and 
sucking their mama titty at 50 years old. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous how men and women both, especially men, that are still being breastfed by their parents at an old age is ridiculous. And when I say that they're breastfed at an old age, I mean by the bank accounts and the support and giving them a room in the basement and stuff like that. That is what I mean. And it makes those men very immature. The best way to help a child is to let them grow up. That is the best way to help a child rather than nurturing them as a child. Amen. But let's just get right to the main point here. Verse 32, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has given you gladly, chosen gladly, to give you the kingdom. Amen. Little flock. He didn't say huge. He didn't say large. But little flock. You can receive the kingdom. God wants to give you the kingdom. God wants to give you the kingdom. He's a good, good, very good God. Amen. He wants only the best for us. He wants us to have a citizenship in his kingdom. Amen. Now, where it says little, right in front of the word little, we need to insert there the word the, the, T-H-E, because I just came to realize last night that in the Greek it has the word the. Do not be afraid, the little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Amen. And it says in verse 33, sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes nor does moth destroy. So when he says make money belts that do not wear out, he's not talking about physical money belts. He's talking about, in the context of this verse, he's talking about make yourself a heavenly bank account. That's what he's saying in different words. Make yourself a heavenly bank account rather than worrying about stocking up money in an earthly bank. It is our heavenly bank account, the rewards that he's going to give us, how much land in his kingdom he's going to give us. We should be more concerned about that than how much land we own here in this world, in this age. Amen. We are going to receive an inheritance. Amen. Romans 8. We're going to receive an inheritance. If we are the children of God, we are joint hires with Christ. Amen. We're going to receive an inheritance. And is that it is that inheritance in God's kingdom, in his government, that we should be more concerned about rather than land here on this earth. But in the midst of all this, it was very, very important what he called us, the little flock. That means that the majority of the world is not his flock. Now, everybody belongs to him in one sense. 
The Bible says repeatedly over and over and over many times that the earth and all the inhabitants thereof are his. Amen. But as far as a spiritual family that actually loves him, actually honors him, respects him, and treats him as the heavenly father that he is, we're only a small number of people. So it is very significant that he included those words there. The rest of the world are those that worry themselves to death. The rest of the world is those that are depressed. And the rest of the world are those that think that they need a million dollars and that they got to uh, have fancy everything and that they got to pursue more and pursue more and pursue more and pursue more. But we are the ones that are content of eating grass. We are the sheep of the little flock. We're content with eating grass. We are content with eating the herbs, the flowers, the fruits, the vegetables, the berries that grow wild that God would nourish us with. We'll bring in some canned food. We'll bring in some grain. We'll bring up some we'll bring some dehydrated foods. But in the end, the only thing we will have is what God provides. Amen? During that three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, any supplies that we did bring in would dwindle away, probably, and be left to only what we can find off the land that God provides, and he will provide. Amen. And as those three and a half years progress, Toward the end of the Great Tribulation, I guarantee you that a lot of people, their clothes will be wearing out. I know that the Bible says that in the first Exodus, and when they spent, what was it, 40 years in the wilderness, their shoes did not wear out for 40 years. Their shoes did not wear out. And I know that there are a ton of similarities, a ton of similarities of what did happen with the first exodus will also happen with the second exodus. I understand that. But I also understand that we do live at the end of time and that this end time exodus and great tribulation will be the worst tribulation that has ever entered into the, the time frame of all humanity. It will be a worse time than the 40 years in the wilderness because it is our last test for those that are going to enter the first resurrection. For those that will enter the first resurrection, the great tribulation will be our last three and a half years of being tested and we must be tried with fire and it will be a difficult test it will be more difficult than what they dealt with in the 40-year wilderness in some aspects in some ways but at the same time it would be easier for us because we actually know Jesus they did they really did did they no so it would be both it would be more difficult and easier both at the same time and uh, the challenge will be difficult. 
But if we put our eyes on the finish line, if we put our minds on God, then it won't be that difficult, really. Sit down. If we go into the wilderness without faith, without hope, without joy, without thanksgiving, then we'll be shaking in our boots, scared to death of every shadow, and we will starve, and we will die. Even as those in the wilderness went in thinking, we're going to die. I'm going to go back to Egypt where there's food and clothes. I'm going to go back there where there was the dictators of Egyptian government dictating our every move. I want to stay in bondage because I don't trust the Lord. That was their mentality after they crossed the Red Sea. Even before they crossed the Red Sea, they were already saying, woe is me, I'm going to die. God's not going to help me. God's not going to protect me. Even though God's already sent his messenger. He's already sent the great leader, Moses and Aaron. He's already sent heavenly signs. He's already destroyed the firstborn of Egypt. He's already rained hell down out of heaven. He's already showed his great glory. But no, he ain't going to help me. No, he ain't going to give us food. No, he's not going to give us a way of escape. And then after they crossed the Red Sea and saw that great, 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 great miracle, they were still like, woe is me. What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? What am I going to have? Where's my bank account? Where's my Ferrari? I want that chariot over there laden in gold. I want that chariot with those fancy big wheels. If we go into the wilderness not trusting the Lord, we will die. Amen. But if we put our mind on his goodness, his faithfulness, his ability to feed us, then we'll survive and even have abundance survive and live and have abundance and it'll be the best time of our lives even in the midst of great tribulation we'll be laughing and enjoying ourselves and eating drinking homemade homemade wine amen if we trust the lord amen god is good to us let's go over to the book of matthew now matthew 22 But I think for, not, for many of us, even if we are trusting the Lord, that we're going to come out three and a half years with barely a shirt left to us. Especially for the men, I don't think you're going to have a barely a shirt left on your back by the end of the three and a half years after all that hunting, after all the snow and the rain and ice and wind and sun and heat and dampness and Everything else, and the tree limbs, how they 
or grab onto your clothes. The tree limbs kind of just reach out and grab you and rip your clothes off from you. Tree limbs know better than we do. Amen. Let's go to Matthew 22, verse 1. God willing, we'll go from verse 1 down through verse 14. Matthew 22, verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man or king who gave a wedding fiesta for his son. And, of course, this is a parable of God being the man who gave a wedding feast for his son, Jesus. But it's using the human analogy. Verse 3, he sent out his servants to call those who had been invited to the wedding. And they were unwilling to come. There are many people unwilling to come to be part of the church. There are many people unwilling to go to the marriage supper or the appointed place where they can eat the nourishment of the spiritual food. There are many people who are unwilling to come. There's people that live right here in this town that know this ministry is here, that know my name, what I drive, where I live, and what we teach. And they know it's true. They know it's true. And they know it's true. And they're not here because they're stubborn because they're proudful, because they won't swallow their pride and admit that they were wrong, because they don't want to submit themselves to authority. Amen. Because they're rebellious and proud-hearted. Amen. They're unwilling to come. Verse 4, again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who have been invited Behold, I have prepared myself dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are butchered. That means they are killed. And everything is ready. The food is ready. Come. Come to the wedding. And they paid no attention and went their way, their own way. One to his own farm. Another to his business. So everybody's making excuses. I got to take care of my own farm. I got to take care of my business. I got to pay my electric. I got to have a bank account. I got to do this. I got to do that. I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm not free to come where I'm supposed to go, even though I'm being called to come, because I've got this to take care of. Verse 6. And the rest of the people seized his servants and mistreated them and murdered them. So we are all right. We are a persecuted church. We are a hated church. If you're part of a church where they don't call you a cult, then you are part of the universal Catholic church, Islam. I don't care if you call yourself Baptist or Pentecostal or Lutheran or Presbyterian. I don't care what you call yourself. If, if the people of the town where you're at and you go to church, if the people in that community do not say that that church is a cult, 
If they do not claim that that church is a cult, then guess what? You are part of a cult. Amen? You are part of a cult if they don't call that church a cult. Because the Bible says very, very clearly that the world loves its own. Amen? If they're loving, the whole world loves Billy Graham in general, the church of the world, all the denominations, all the preachers, all the people with the number one best-selling books in religion, they all love and glorify Billy Graham. That makes him a cult leader because the world loves their own. That is not the little flock of God. That is not the tiny church of God. The tiny church of God has three people in this room today. And how many listening live? Only four people. That's not because of lack of advertising. That's not because lack of ability to get out there, to get the name of the ministry out there. That's not the reason at all. The reason is people love the world and its religions and its churches and its leaders, but they hate God. They hate God. They hate God's truth, God's words, the truth of the Bible. They hate the truth of God's doctrines and his commandments. Amen. That's the God to honest truth. That is the God to honest truth. If you don't realize that, then every time you've read the Bible, it was only reading it in the context of how the Babylonian church taught you to read it, how to twist the scriptures, how to read it the way they want you to read it, just like a computer chip. You've been nothing more than a computer chip. You've been nothing more than a robot reading the Bible the way they programmed you to read it. And therefore, when you read it, you did not understand what it said, that if you was to deny yourself and take up your cross, you would die. They will hate you. They will murder you. They will persecute you. They will stone you. They will call you a cult. And if you are not called a cult, then you are a cult. Amen. God's little church is a hated church. All the preachers in this town hate me with a passion. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Because then I know that I'm in the truth, that I'm in the little church, the little flock of God. Because the world hates the truth. They hated Jesus. They hated Jeremiah. They hated all of God's prophets throughout time. Why would it be any different today? Why would it be any different? Do you think anything has changed? Nothing has changed. If they always, 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 always did in every generation, without exception, every generation, the people of the world in general have hated and despised and persecuted and murdered God's servants wherever they were, wherever they were. Any town, any generation, God's servants were hated and despised. If you're not hated and despised for what you believe and what you share and witness about, then you are part of Babylon or else you're too fearful 
of losing family and friends. If you got friends that are still talking to you that are in Babylon, then you are too fearful to lose friends of the world. Amen. If your friends are mocking you and laughing at you for what you tell them what's happening, they don't accept the truth, then why are you still friends with them? Oh, I'm holding now. I got hope. I got hope. Oh, they're going to come around. They're going to come around. Oh, I love them. I love them. I love them. I love them. The truth is that you're not willing to forsake. You're not willing to forsake the world. You're not willing to forsake the world if you're not willing to forsake family and friends. All of us, every one of us, must be willing to forsake family and friends. I have lost family that I loved and friends that I loved because they rejected God's word. And I must make a stand. I must make a stand, a firm, firm, firm stand. And that shows them the seriousness of the situation. We're not teaching them anything. We're not even teaching them love if we're not willing to rebuke them and disfellowship from them when they deny the truth. Amen. So it says here, when these people were invited to the wedding feast, that either they went their own way, their own will, making excuses, or else they killed or mistreated the servants of God. Verse 7, but the king was enraged. That's talking about God. The king was enraged, angry, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. This is God. What does God do when people reject him and hate his church? God doesn't say, I'm going to keep on having patience with you. I love you, and I'm going to keep on having patience with you. No, instead, he gets angry and sends his armies to destroy people and places. Amen. He set their city on fire. Then he said to his servants, the waiting is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So go everywhere, inviting people to the wedding. And those servants went out into the streets and gathered together all that they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Amen. This is why we should add contacts on our social media profiles that are lost people. Because right here and other places in the Bible also, we are told to invite everyone, both evil and good. Amen? God did not come to save the righteous. He came to save the sinners. We need to reach out to this lost world. Amen? We need to reach out to the lost. 
We need to reach out to the lost and add everybody that we can, everybody that we can, to our social media accounts so that they can read what we're posting, so that we, they can read when we share each other's posts. Now, if you're on the social media website with me, what you need to do is do more than just read what I post. What you need to do is click it where it says share so that you will share it on your timeline so that your contacts that are subscribed to your uh, profile, they can read what you share. If somebody is a contact of yours but not a contact of mine, they can see what I'm saying. But if you share it, they can see it. So you need to click share on all of the most important. You don't have to do everything. But all of the most important posts, things that really stand out as being important to salvation or important to people understanding what time it is in the prophetic timeline, things are, are the most important. Share all of those for sure. But it does no good if you don't have any contacts or if you only have five contacts. That don't do no good. Come on now. Get on there and invite people to the wedding feast. Get on there and invite every person you see on MeWay. Will you be my friend? Come on, join, come on, come on, come on. And it's easy to do. Just go to any group and click on members and see the member list and go one by one by one. It only takes two, maybe five seconds most for each person to add them as a contact. And yes, you're going to see pornography. Yes, you're going to see naked temples of God. Yes, you're going to see some nasty stuff as well. And yes, you're going to see some sinful stuff as well. But all you got to do then once you see that is to mark it, the checkbox, to unmark the checkboxes where it says show their timeline. Once you unclick that box where it says show their timeline, you won't see their profile ever again. But they are continue, they will continue to be able to read what you share and what you post. But you won't never see their stuff again unless they comment on something you say or unless you click on their profile. So you don't have to keep on seeing their junk. Amen. But we have to, that's a very good way of reaching out to the world. And there's not much time left, so let us be working while we can still work. While it's still day, let us be working to reach the laws. It's not good enough to just learn the truth. We have to share that truth with other people. Amen. So it says everybody was invited, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Verse 11, but when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a person there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. He didn't know what to say. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness, meaning eternal death, 
And there will be crying and gashing of teeth, meaning as they are thrown into that fire to die and suffer that darkness, eternal death, there will be pain as they enter into that lake of fire. But then they will close their eyes and die and have eternal darkness, eternal death. Okay? So that verse does not at all, does not at all teach an eternal suffering in hellfire. It does not. Okay? They will gash their teeth when they're thrown into the fire, but then as they die, they will close their eyes and be in darkness in eternal death, according to the Bible. Amen. According to many scriptures. Amen. Now, wedding clothes in verse 12. This is a spiritual parable. It's not saying that you always got to wear clothes all the time. But what it is saying is that when we get to the marriage feast, we better be ready. That we better be true to the Lord. That we should be pure. That we should have on the fine pressed white linen, which is spiritual good righteousness. John himself said in the book of Revelation that the white robes are our righteousness, our righteous acts, not literal robes, not literal wedding clothes. It is a symbol for righteousness. And if we show up at the marriage feast without righteousness, without holiness, then we won't be able to eat the feast. We won't be allowed. Now, this won't actually happen. Okay? This is just symbolic language. There won't be anyone. There won't be anyone at the marriage feast that will be thrown out. That's not going to happen. Okay? But you say, oh, but it will happen. It says right here it's going to happen. I think I recall it might have been uh, like an altered version of a lot of the parables the Pharisees had. Some of these parables were. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that about this. This is God's truth. There's no Babylonian thing to this. Okay? It's God's truth. But we got to understand it is symbolic talk. It's not actually how it's going to happen as far as someone showing up not spiritually dressed, that will not happen. It's just saying that we won't get to eat the marriage supper unless we are spiritually clean. That's the overall point. And we must always remember to understand the parables, look at the overall point and don't get caught up in so much of the details. The details will throw you off. Look at the overall spiritual principle that is being taught. Now, verse 14, many are called, but few chosen. And that means that everybody has an opportunity to hear the truth and to choose life. We're distributing the flyers. We are putting everything out in public. Amen. We're reached out. We did reach out previously on Facebook and Twitter. We have reached out with other groups. We're right now reaching out with Telegram and me, we both. 
we have reached out on YouTube and GodTube and BitChute and all kinds of other websites. We have reached out on the radio station, previously many different radio stations, at least nine or ten radio stations we have reached out on. We have reached out on, previously, we did Google advertisement, Facebook advertisement, newspapers locally, uh, other magazines we have reached out to previously. We have done all kinds of stuff to get the truth out there. Many are called, but few chosen. That means everybody has the opportunity to say yes or no to God's word. But only a few actually do choose God right back. Amen. Only a few people, a small church, a small flock of people, actually walk in agreement with God to say, I do. I accept that I will be there, I will be ready, and I will be your willing bride. I will be a submissive bride. I'm willing to submit myself to the church administration and to you and your will and not my will. I will put you first, not last. I will put you first, not second, not after my business, not after my farm, not after my family, not after my finances. I will put you first. I'll be there and I'll be ready and I will be right, I'll be right there. Amen. Only few will actually make it into the first resurrection in comparison to the number of people that will go to the second resurrection. Now, there will actually be tons of people there at the first resurrection. There will be. But few in comparison to the number of people that will be in the second resurrection. The second resurrection will include all of the people from the Old Testament times because there was no salvation available in Old Testament times. None. Zip. Amen. And all the babies that died in abortion, all the children that died young, even in New Testament times, even in our day and time, the babies that were aborted, children that died young, and people that never understood the truth, and people that wasn't given a full opportunity for the truth, as well as the people that rejected the truth, which is tons of people, tons and tons and tons of people that have rejected the truth. All of those and more will be in the second resurrection. So the second resurrection will be many times more, many times more, larger number of people in that second harvest. Amen. So few are chosen for the first resurrection. And the context of what we're talking about is first resurrection because that's the marriage feast. There is no marriage feast for the second resurrection. There is not. Okay? So it's only the first resurrection that is talking about few are chosen for the first resurrection in comparison to the universal church. And we're not going to go there right now, but we know that Revelation 12, verse 9 says that the devil, Satan, has deceived the entire world, the whole world. Shh. 
So if the devil has deceived the whole world, as it says in Revelation 12 and 9, the entire world in general, in general, the entire world, that would be a universal Catholic, Islamic, Buddhist, Hindu church. And so God's true church, God's true church must be small, must be. How can it be large if the whole world is deceived? The true church must be only a small little group, a small flock. Amen? Now, if all this be true of what I've just said, then it also stands to reason that you would not have a lot of true pastors either. If the flock is small, you don't need a million pastors for a small flock, right? Be all, all what they call it, to be any, to me any Indian chiefs and not enough Indians, to me chiefs and not enough Indians. If you got, it doesn't make any sense to have a thousand or ten thousand or a million true pastors or true prophets or any such thing or true apostles or true evangelists or any such thing or true teachers, or true doctrines, or true websites, if the small church, if the church of the truth is confined to a small church, how many pastors you need? Only one, two, or three in a small church, if you're talking worldwide. We've got two congregations in Algeria. We've got one congregation here. We've got one congregation down in Jamaica. Jamaica, only two people. Algeria, 36 people, counting the children. Um, Algeria. Then you've got just one sister in Australia. Can you get that, please? Only one sister in Australia. Only one brother in Korea. Uh, A congregation of only one man, his wife, and child in Zimbabwe. So it's a small congregation worldwide even though we are worldwide we're still a small congregation absolutely amen even if you count all the people in all the planet that actually do participate in this ministry we are still yet a very small congregation and so there's only two pastors in Nigeria uh, one deacon in Zimbabwe and then myself, and that's our entire ministry of administration. So this is a small flock, and that's the way it's supposed to be. That's how this part of how you know that you have found the truth, that God has led you in the truth. If there's not a lot of pastors and if there's not a lot of members, if it's a small church, amen, because the whole world is deceived. But if you have a flock, then you also need a shepherd. Amen. And we know that Jesus is the head of the church, ultimately. But you've got to have human shepherds as well. Moses, Noah, uh, Joseph, Jeremiah, Paul, so on, so on, so on, so on. Every generation has to have a human shepherd, a pastor. Amen. And in fact, the word pastor is related to a sheep's pasture. It is related to that word. It is, it is a shepherd. A pastor 
is a shepherd. And if you're going to have a flock, then you need shepherds. What good is a flock without a leader? What is good of a flock without a human shepherd? This is the way God has always led. We know that Ephesians 4 or Ephesians 5, whichever it is, says that he has sent us the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for our own good, that we may come into unity of the faith. And we also need our brother and our sisters. Amen. A flock is not a flock without brothers and sisters. Amen. If you only have one sheep, that's not a flock. We need our brothers and sisters. We need our brothers and sisters, and they need us. They need us, and we need them. It goes both ways. So don't think that you can just do it on your own. You should not want to. You should not want to need it to do it on your own. You should not need to do it on your own. If there's any way at all that you can gather together, assemble, as the Bible even commands us, a lot of people don't understand that the fourth commandment of the, the worshiping of the seventh day, that that's not just a commandment to just rest. That's only part of that commandment. That's only part of the commandment to rest on the seventh day. The other part of that same commandment is the command to assemble together. Amen. A command to assemble together, to gather together. We need one another. We need fellowship. We're humans. All humans need fellowship. We need hugs. We need eye, eye to eye. We need contact. We need handshaking. We need a pat on the back. We all need a pat on the back at times. We all need it. Human interaction. We're not robots. We're not computer chips. We need human interaction. Amen. So we need our brothers and our sisters and our shepherds. So if it is at all possible, it is God's will. And you don't have to hear the thunder and the lightning to obey God and to receive his direction and what God wants you to do. You don't always have to fast. You don't always have to pray for day after day. Use a little bit of common sense. Use a little bit of logic. And also, feel the pounding of your heart of the direction that God is leading you. Amen. That, if at all possible, go to where the sheep are and go to where the shepherd is to be fed and to be part of the congregation. Amen. And for those that can't do that because there's not, you're out of the, out, outside the United States and you don't have a local congregation there yet, why don't you open up your door to receive new sheep if they're willing to come. And if they don't come, so be it. But at least be willing to receive new sheep into the flock 
and be willing to host, I'm talking to people outside the United States, because all Americans should be right here with us in this room. But outside the United States, open up your door and be willing to host a congregation under the administration of this church, under the administration of myself, because that is God's ordaining. That is what God wants. That's God's will. I'm not trying to build an empire for myself. But I have to fulfill my calling, and I have to say it the way it is. Confirmation last night, I was over at, at Brother Robert's house, and he said that, you know, he had looked all across the Internet to find if anybody else had the same doctrines, if anybody else was teaching the truth and where the truth was available, and he just could not find it anywhere else at one time. When he was searching for all that, he could not find it anywhere else. And I did the same thing. I did, repeatedly, over and over and over. I have searched so many times over the years to try to find another pastor outside this ministry that we could cooperate with, co combine our efforts, work together, and try to reach more people like that and, and just have more brothers and sisters with, within their ministry and not even have to come under our administration. Just somebody else, just someone else that has the truth. And I have looked hard and high and low and I just can't find it and Robert's not found it and nobody else has found it. I've had a lot of people tell me this over the years that they cannot find the total truth because you always find just a little bit of truth in anything. But we cannot find the total truth anywhere else. And so that really does make us a small flock with not many ministers of truth in this world. Not many ministers of truth in this world. Not many true brothers and sisters in this world and just that conversation because he didn't know what I was going to preach today. He didn't know what I was going to preach today. But him saying that, that there's only one ministry of truth that he's ever been able to find, that was a confirmation of the sermon. Now, contrary to popular belief, you do not have to have two or three witnesses on everything. You do not have to have two or three witnesses to everything I say, every doctrine I teach, every prophecy that I share with you. You do not have to have two or three witnesses. I'm the only one that I know of that has the complete prophetic timeline of how the strong delusion will happen on the date of Purim how that Assad will appear in the sky exactly 30 days later after that, which would be after, I mean, after he does appear in the sky, 30 days later will be the invasion on the first day of unleavened bread, and so on and so on and so on, how there's five holy days that fit 100% perfectly in the end time prophetic events timeline. 
I don't know anybody else that has that in the correct order and dates and everything. Because you're not going to find a second or a third witness to that. You're not going to find it. I wish we would. You know, I would love, I would say, that I, I would love to find somebody, another preacher, another church, another ministry that would have that. But they don't. And they're not willing. When you tell them, they're not willing. Amen. Amen. So, we are a small church, only a few people willing to accept the truth. And you don't have to always have two or three witnesses to everything. The Bible itself is my witness. What did Jesus say? The Father is my witness. He didn't say, oh, I've got these two over here and I've got these three over here that's my witness. No. He said, the Father is my witness. Amen. So I'm saying the same thing. God is my witness. And the Bible is my witness. So if you want me to have two witnesses, here it is. The Bible and God. Okay? They are my witnesses. And if you want me to have three witnesses, I will add Brother Robert. Okay? Noah was the only one saying that the flood was coming. Amen? It was only Noah. Only Noah. He didn't have no witnesses. Only Noah was the only one saying that the flood was coming. And God searched the entire earth, the Bible said, that God searched the entire earth, and there was only one righteous man that he could find in the earth, and that was Noah. And he was over 600 years old, or maybe 500 when he first started building, 500 and something by the time he first started building the ark. And God did not forsake him, once he came off the ark at the age of 600 and something, God did not forsake him. That was God's man. That was God's prophet. That was God's pastor and messenger to the whole world at that time. And he drank heavily. He even got drunk and naked, both. An old 600 and some naked old man, but he was God's servant. He was still God's servant. Amen. People always want to say, well, when he got drunk and naked, he was sinning. The Bible don't say that. That's just what you think. The Bible doesn't say that he was sinful when he got drunk and naked. People's like, yeah, but look at what happened. His, one of his sons were cursed. Who was cursed? His son was cursed, not Noah. Not Noah. So people's reasoning is really ridiculous. The way people try to reason things. Oh, Noah was sin, therefore his son was cursed. That don't make no sin at all. That don't make no sense at all. Noah didn't do nothing. Of course, you know he had some kind of sin. He wasn't Jesus. But as far as that biblical example of when he got drunk and naked, if that was a sin, it would have said so. He would have been cursed. God would have rebuked him, either there or in a different verse. But there's no verse of condemnation or punishment against Noah at all. Hey, after you spent all that, what it was, a year maybe on the ark, I would have got drunk and naked too. So, when I'm saying that there was only Noah 
And the earth was very populous, we believe. We believe that the earth was extremely populated. Lots and lots of people, probably billions of people, is what a lot of people believe, and is what I believe as well, probably billions of people. And yet there's only one. Only one. And I believe that if you look at the ministry today in the world, I believe you're only going to find only this ministry with our two pastors in Nigeria and myself and our brothers and our sisters, not very many. And it was only Noah and his family, only eight souls. Amen. And we've only got four people listening today, and there'll be another one or two listen later. But that's about it. That's about it. I'm not trying to exalt myself, but it's just the way it is. A little flock. Now, of course, we're going to eventually become a large flock. We will eventually, because the book of Revelation is very clear that in the final year of the Great Tribulation, that God will bring the 144,000 young male virgin preachers that will help take the truth into all the world. And not only then, but also even before the Great Tribulation, when people finally see the prophecies that I have shared come to fulfillment, when they see the uh, NATO or American attack on Syria soon, which I believe will be in the next month or two or three, whenever, whatever year it happens, when they see that fulfilled, the attack on Syria, when they see especially Assad in the sky, and then especially 30 days after that, the invasion of Israel, and at some point of time, probably the same day, the invasion of America, and the UK and Australia and South Korea and other places, people are finally going to wake up and finally realize that I wasn't crazy and that I wasn't deceived and that I wasn't a false prophet. I may not have been right on every prophecy I've ever pronounced in my whole life because I had to grow in truth. I had to grow in wisdom. I had to grow in God's spirit and God's will as any human. So I have not been perfect, but God, but God, and his word will be vindicated. Amen. Not my words. It's God's words. His prophecies. It's not my prophecies. I hate it when people say your Bible. It's not my Bible. I didn't write it. I hate it when people say the Bible you wrote or your translation. It's none of those things. It all belongs to God. It all belongs to God. It's God's church, God's ministry, and God's Bible. Amen? I am just a caretaker of those things, a shepherd that manages those things. But we will become a large flock, larger and larger as time goes along. 
But even then, in comparison with the world, we'll always be small until the fullness of God's kingdom. Amen. All right, one last final thing before I let you go is that the holy days that will be coming up, we've got Purim. When is Purim? Yeah, March 28th is Purim. So March 28th, Purim, we will have special worship services that day. And then 30 days after that, we'll have Passover on April the 28th is Passover. Then we have the seven days of unleavened bread. And remember that on Passover, we take communion and do the foot washing. And then we have the seven days of unleavened bread. So over these next few months, we'll begin to prepare ourselves for that. And for that assembly, the Americans need to come here where we are and participate in the Passover service, do the foot washing and communion with us, and stay for the seven days of unleavened bread. You can get a camping site, put up a tent and camp in a campground, or you can get a motel room somewhere uh, and spend those eight days, holy days, with us in the spring in the latter part of the end of April. So plan accordingly, financially, time off from work, finances, the ability to travel, gasoline, fuel, food, prepare your second tithes for that. The Bible does teach three tithes. And uh, your first tithe is paid to God through the ministry, as well as you can use that money to buy Bibles with and to help uh, the meeting in your own area where you live, that part of that does need to go to the ministry because the Bible is very clear on that as well, to not forsake the ministry and the ministries. The Bible is very clear on that. Your second type, you don't give to me, but rather you save it up to be used for travel expenses, food, and supplies for all the holy days so that you can come here or wherever your local congregation is for the ministry uh, for all the holy days. And especially when it comes to the Feast of Tabernacles, to go be able to count somewhere. So every uh, October, September, at the Feast of Tabernacles, to have eight days of camping in tents required by God, even if you don't have a local congregation, wherever you are, whatever nation you're in, to have eight days of camping in tents. That is God's word. That is God's commandment. And your second tithes is made for yourself in a savings account or under, under your mattress or in a coffee can or wherever to save up for these trips so that there be no excuses. Well, I can't afford it. I can't afford it. I can't afford it. Yes, you can. If you're keeping your second tithe, that is a savings account just for obedience to God and these three annual pilgrimages. Amen. And then uh, you'll be able to do what God has commanded. Amen. But I can't afford a second tithe. I'm not rich. Listen. If Sister 
Kiki and if other people, members of this congregation can do it, then you can do it. There's no excuses, okay? God does not ask anything too difficult from us. He only has us to do only what is possible. He does not ask the impossible. But everybody wants to throw an excuse. School, my children, my brother, my sister, my mom, my electorate, whatever. Everybody wants to throw an excuse. If you want to obey God, God will make a way. You might have to fight a little bit to get it, but if you want to obey God, he will make a way. You may have to deny yourself a little bit or a lot. You may have to deny someone else. You may have to deny legal responsibility. You may have to fight with the government. You might have to be arrested. So what? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. If you want to obey God, it may cause you your life. I don't want to die, Pastor. I don't want to be arrested, Pastor. Then you are thinking you're putting too much weight, too much importance on your life, your freedom, your will, what he said, what she said, what I'm required to do by human government, what I'm required to do by human this, human that, human this, human this. But what about God? What about the king? What about the kingdom? What about God's commandments? What is most important? I will obey God above me. And what did we say just the other day on the new moon? That if it comes down to it, if it comes down to it of choosing who to obey, I will obey God and not man. Amen. We're going to have to set priorities. God first. God first. Before job. Before money. Before freedom. Before life. God first. Because it's only the second life. Only the kingdom life. Only eternal life. That really matters. Everybody wants to save their life in this world. But they don't want to save their life for the next world. Amen. You've got to be willing to die on the cross. You've got to be willing to forsake anyone, anything, to obey God first. God's kingdom, his ways, his commandments. First, above all else, we've got, we got to be willing to give up job, money, houses, career, family, friends, if needed, in order to obey God. We should keep the feast days and the holy days and the pilgrimage and the second tide and the first tide. And then on your third year after baptism, your third tide, every third, well, the third year out of every seven-year cycle after baptism is when you start counting your three years. Your third year after baptism will be a third tide that goes just to the orphans and the widows and the poor and stuff like that because the first tide that goes to the ministry uh, is used on all kinds of stuff that it's difficult to do everything. Very, very difficult to take care of everybody and everything 
just own 10%. To your third tide would be more specific to helping people. Okay. Um, and that can be done directly in your life or through the ministry, either one. Uh, you don't have to worry about that until your third year after baptism. God is good. There is an article about tithes on the website. Very simple address. I saw the light ministries.com slash tithes html these are not surprising addresses they're not surprising addresses and they're very simple to find and for certain articles that might be a little bit more complicated in the address all you got to do is type in the search box on the website there's a search box on the bottom of every page on the website i believe and all you got to do is type in there tides or heaven and hell, or Lazarus, or Enoch, or whatever you want to search, to search the website to see if I've already written about it or not. Brother Kareem said, I told someone during the week that God takes care of the raven and would take care of him, of that person. Hearing it today is beautiful. Amen. Thank you, Brother Kareem, for that testimony of confirmation of today's sermon. He had just told someone this week that God would take care of the raven. He'd take care of that person too. Amen? Now, he'd take care of that person if that person belongs to God. Amen? If that person belongs to God, he'd take care of them. And so we always have to make sure that we apply these verses correctly. Uh, with the wicked, the lawless, those that do not keep his commandments, God does not promise to provide and take care of the children of Satan. He does not. Okay? If, he's, if it's a person that doesn't keep the commandments, doesn't keep the seventh day, doesn't keep the holy days, then there is no promise that God will take care of him. Okay? We've got to keep these verses in the context of, of the flock, of the church of God's people, of his citizens, the citizens of God's kingdom. But nevertheless, that is confirmation of the sermon today. And I praise God for that. Oh, and I missed Philippians 2. Let's go over there, page 211. Page 211. Philippians 2, verse 11. Or verse 7. Philippians 2, verse 7. Philippians 2, verse 7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my... I'm, that's chapter 1. i got to go to chapter 2. I'll find it here in a second. Chapter 2, verse 7. Let's start in verse 6. Verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of theos, did not decide that wholeness with theos was a thing to be held on to. Okay, so it's saying that Jesus was at one time whole with God. 
And he existed in that form, that he was God. And he was one being, one spirit, one soul with God, not divided. But he decided that he would not hold on to that wholeness, that he would divide himself, that he would segment, divide himself into the human form and leave heaven. And at that time that he left heaven, he emptied himself. And that's what I want to point at, is that God emptied himself. And some, some translations, uh, anyway, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and came in the likeness of mankind. The reason I point that out is over in Luke 12, we didn't read that particular verse, but over in Luke 12 it says that Jesus said that you don't know what hour that he would come. Be ready at all times, for you know not when he had come. You know not what hour the Son of Mankind comes. When he said that, he was talking in general to the world. And it was a true statement. He wasn't wrong, of course. He was always right in that. But he was speaking in general that the majority of the world will not know. They won't. They won't know when the Lord is coming, even as it says in Matthew, probably Luke and John as well, that they'll still be building buildings when he comes. And they'll still be... Uh, going into marriage, still getting married, living a normal life. When he comes, even there's even a verse that says even the cement will still be wet on these new buildings because they think that life is just going to continue forever and ever and ever and the end is not coming. So he will come at a time, at an hour, when most people in this world do not know. But that's not true. For God's little flock. We're not like the rest of the world. We know more about the Bible and God's plan. We understand more. We know more because he is teaching us. He is teaching us. Amen. We will know the date of his return. I promise you. Because the Bible says very clear in Daniel 12, that there will be exactly 1,335 days. Not one day more, not one day less from the time of the abomination of desolation until the end, until the day Jesus comes back. And that means 30 days of fleeing, 30 days of gathering, 30 days to get into the flock that you belong in, which really you should do way before then, but 30 final days to get into the caravan, the church, the flock that you're supposed to go into the wilderness with. The end of that 30 days is the invasion and the beginning of the great tribulation of 1260 days. At the end of that 1260 days, the two witnesses will die and their dead bodies will lay in the streets for three and a half days in Jerusalem. At the end of that three and a half days, they would be caught up to heaven at the same time that we are, at the blowing of the last trumpet on the Day of Atonement. 
For another 41 and a half days after that, the wrath of God will be poured out upon humanity while we are in heaven for the marriage supper. And then finally, blesses he that cometh to the 1,335th day, the day Jesus lands on earth and reigns forever and forever without end upon this earth, not in heaven, but on earth. Amen. So yes, we would know, because if you're not a child of one-year-old, if you're not a one-year-old child, I believe that most of us are capable of counting 1,335 days from the time that Assad appears in the sky. So yes, the bride of Christ will know the date of her marriage. How, what bride doesn't know the date of her own marriage? What bride does not know the date of her own marriage? Unless it was rape or something and she didn't know it was going to happen. But in general, most of the time, all brides know the date that she will be with her husband. So we got to understand, a lot of times, Jesus taught in general terms. Amen. And then also, this scripture says that he emptied himself out. That means he came to earth only as a small measure of himself, not in the wholeness, not with all the knowledge that he had in heaven. When he was in heaven and he was whole with God, he had all knowledge, all power, all authority. He was the Almighty. But when he emptied himself out into a tiny vessel, a tiny cup of flesh to die for our sins, he left a lot of that knowledge in heaven and a lot of that power in heaven. That's why Jesus said that the Father, after the resurrection, after he died and resurrected, he eventually said, the Father has given to me the power and the authority because he gave up that power and authority when he was born. He emptied himself out. He didn't have all the knowledge when he was walking on earth in human form because the human brain would not be able to hold all the knowledge of God, even though the human brain is a, a miracle muscle, whatever it is, is a miracle organ, whatever it is, that can contain a thousand more times or ten thousand more times knowledge than what we actually hold, but not all the not all the knowledge of God. No, it can't. So when he came to earth in human form, he had to humble himself, even as the next verse says that he humbled himself. So he did not come to earth with all knowledge. He separated himself from the greater measure of himself that stayed in heaven, which he referred to as the Father in that. So he did not know the date of his return. He even said, even the angels do not know and even the Son of Mankind does not know that hour or that day. He didn't know because he had emptied himself of that knowledge before he came to earth or as he came to earth. But now that he is in heaven again, 
He absolutely does now. He does. Now that he is now at heaven in the, the throne on the right-hand side of the Father, being two separate parts of the same spirit, of the same soul, of the same being, not two Godheads, but just a separate part of God, like a left hand and a right hand, right beside each other. He now knows, again, all the knowledge of God, including the date of his return. And because he knows it, we will also know it. Once we know the date of the abomination of desolation, once we know that Assad has appeared in the sky, all we've got to do, even a child, could count to 1,335 days. Okay? So I wanted to explain that verse, even though we didn't read that verse, but I know you've read it a million times. But it's important to understand the truth about that verse and similar verses. This is not my opinion. This is not my interpretation. This is scripture. This is scripture. Amen. All you gotta do is count to 1,335 days. It's as simple as that. How can you debate that? How can you deny that? Amen. It's simple. The truth is simple. Amen. But we're only a small flock that will have that knowledge. Most of the world will not have that knowledge. And most of the world will be shocked and surprised at the coming of the Lord. But for us and my house, I would not allow my house to be broken into as a thief in the night. Jesus would not come as a thief to me, but rather he would come as my bridegroom my Savior, my Lord, my Master, my God. He would not come as a thief in the night to me or to his bride. He does not come as a thief in the night to his own bride. His bride will be ready. His bride will be dressed. The bride doesn't get dressed in the wedding dress until the last minute. Amen? Well, the last two and a half hours, but... The bridegroom, or the bride, the bride does not get into the dress until it is time for the marriage. She will be dressed. She will have the wedding clothes on. So how can you say that she won't know the date? Amen. We will absolutely know the date. No man knows. Bullcrap. That was true for that day. That was true for that time. But now we live 2,000 years after that was written. This is a new time. This is a new day. We will know if you know God. We will know if we have his mind. If you have the mind of Christ, how do you not know? Amen. You've got to be willing to grow. You've got to be willing to grow in the truth. And I will push you the whole way. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I will push and push and push, push you, because time is short. And I gotta say this, because I know God gave me this. I've been watching, um, was watching for a while. There, a so-called. Um, 
on the Food Network Food Channel. I don't have a TV, but I watch it on the internet. A show called Restaurant Impossible. I love that show. And in that show, this uh, one expert man who was an ex-military man, used to be in the Navy, and he's real strong, real big, real muscular, bodybuilder build. He, uh, he owns a lot of restaurants, and he goes around these different places, different restaurants across America. There are restaurants that are almost out of business because the food tastes is bad, the management is bad, they don't know how to run the restaurant, the restaurant business is failing, and he goes and saves these people's businesses, and he shows them what they're doing wrong and how to be successful at the restaurant business. And he completely turns these places around. And he has only two days to do it. Only two days and $10,000. In two days, he remodels the restaurant with $10,000, completely remodels it, changes the way it looks, from old to brand new remodeled, makes it look nice, teaches the people how to cook, how to manage, how to serve customers, how to be successful. He has only two days to do this. And because he has only two days to do this, he has to be very, very aggressive, very aggressive. And so he acts like he's really mean, but he's not mean. It's just that when you have a very short period of time to completely turn everything around from being a failure to being successful, you have to push and you have to push hard and you've got to lay everything right on the line. You've got to say it the way it is. No sugarcoating, not being so overly concerned with manners and politeness, not being concerned about whether you offend the people or not. He just says it the way it is. If their food sucks, then he says it. He says straight out, face to face, your food tastes like vomit. It's nasty, it's nasty, it's nasty. He just lays it right out on the line. And a lot of people get very, very upset with him. They don't know how to handle it. And they can't handle it because he's so honest, so brute force honest with them. But you know, at the end of the day, at the end of those two days, they are thanking him. They, at, at first, they're angry at him and upset. But at the end of it, they are thanking him for his brute honesty and his technique, his method, the way that he's very, very, very aggressive. And I really, really relate to that because I don't have much time I can't be overly concerned about whether I offend you or not or whether you get upset or not because I've got to just say it the way it is and let God take care of it wherever it, wherever it lays. Amen. And as I've said many times before, I feel like a military general, and even God did tell me way back in 2008, God told me that I am a general of a military. And that's God, not me. And so I feel very, even though I was never actually in the human government military, 
I feel very much like I'm a military general, even as God said I would be. And so I feel like that we're all, that you are in a boot camp where I'm a sergeant and I'm just really, really screaming at you, yelling at you, and I'm going to step on your toes and I'm going to offend you and I'm going to push your limits because I've got to get you out of the mind frame of modern Western religion, modern Western culture, modern Western programming, and get you over into the old-fashioned, old ways, original ways, old path, truth, 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 even when it hurts. We ain't got much time. So we've got to be brutally honest to get you where you need to be. Amen. Anything else, Ryder? Oh, yeah. Congratulations, Robert, that this coming Tuesday, January 19th, will be the anniversary of your baptism. What is it, two years? Yeah, it'll be two years. Uh, January 19th, Tuesday. Everybody, make sure that you uh, encourage your brother, Robert, which goes by Gerald, that this can be his second birthday. Uh, spiritual two years two years ago Tuesday that he was baptized two years so he has gone longer than anybody else that is here locally uh, that stayed in the ministry that many people have come and gone come and gone through these doors and nobody else has stayed two complete four years before here locally but we do have Brother AJ and Kiki over in Australia and uh, Korea. They've been in the ministry for longer than that. Uh, but locally, Robert has broken the record. And, uh, and that's good for him. And uh, not good for all the people that's already left. But if they would just swallow their pride and confess their sins, they could come back maybe. Amen. So congratulations, Brother Rob, my bro, my main man. I couldn't do without him. He's such a great help to me. Praise God. That's God's honest truth. God is good. I love every one of you. Hopefully Brian will be baptized soon up in Ohio. We pray for him. Keep praying for Brother Meekness in Zimbabwe and his family. Of course, they've been, they had the coronavirus. His wife, Amanda, is doing completely well now. But last I heard, Meekness was still suffering just a little bit. He was feeling a lot better, but still suffering just a little bit. Keep uh, Jonathan in prison. Keep him in, in prayer. Remember praying for Algeria. Pray for AJ in Korea. Kiki in Australia, 
Grace Jesus Girl in Jamaica and my brother Bountiful Servant in uh, Jamaica as well. Kareem said, congratulations, Robert, and I know the same from Fiona and everybody else. I know they all say, I know they all congratulate you as well. And that is deserving of congratulations because putting up with me locally face-to-face -face, with me yelling and screaming at you, yep, yep, definitely deserving of congratulations. Amen. Praise God. But I'm going to scream some more. It ain't over with. <laughs> he shakes his head. Yeah. It ain't over with. I'm going to be screaming and yelling a whole lot more at him. Because I love him. Because I love him. Amen. And that's what I'm, why I'm going to continue and continue and continue to scream at him because I want the best for him. And that's what dads do. That's just what dads do. Dads that really want the best for their sons, they will be pretty aggressive at them. That's just what dads do. If they're not soft, if they're not wimps, dads will yell at their sons. Now, I know Robert's my brother, but he's also my spiritual son, very much so, very much so. Amen. And that's a good thing. We all need uh, male figures. All of us, both men and women, we all need strong male figures in our life. We do. Amen. Be praying for me, my wife. If you would yell my wife's name a few times in the middle of the night, I would sure appreciate it. Her name is Brittany. Please yell her name a few times day or night for me. I would sure, sure, sure. Appreciate it. Amen. Lift her up to God for me. Okay. I believe that's it. I'll let you go. Have a good day. Have a good night. In Jesus' name. Amen.